It's Something for Nothing, the Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you, as always. Jerry, how's it going? It's going great, Steve. How are you? Just great. And you can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are The Rush Cast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. And the bass intro, as always, done by our good pal Lex today, Mystic Rhythms. And Jer, you know, we were talking just before we started recording about how many drummers we've had on this podcast so far. It's been quite a few. It has been quite a few. So we just had Ron Lipnicki on, right? Mm-hmm. We had Joe Bergamini. Yep. We had Rob Wallace. Yep. We had Stephen Drozd. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. He's a drummer. Mm-hmm. Yep. And today we have another drummer. Can you talk to too many drummers on a Rush podcast? That's the question. Well, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get emails from people saying, can you stop with the drummers already? I have a feeling this is going to be a great one. Look, Neil passed away not too long ago, so we can't talk about Neil enough, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. So before we get into our interview, Jer, do you have an email for us? I do. And this is an email from Mike. It's about our interview with uh, Vicki Flyer Hudson. Oh, great. She's not a drummer. She is not a drummer. He says, Jerry and Steve finally got a chance to listen to this episode. Wow. You guys are really knocking it out of the ballpark when it comes to great interviews. Look at that. Wow. Knocking it out. Like a, that's like a home run, right? Steve? That's a home run. Yes. What a talented and insightful lady. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode, including your readings of her poems. That must be directed at you, Steve. You did a good job reading too. <laughs> I often listen to your podcast while driving. As soon as I got home, I ordered two copies of both of Vicky's books. I think oh, my wow. daughter would love them. I particularly connected with the part about Vicky talking to fans who felt stupid for feeling so much emotion over Neil's passing. I myself was shocked at how deeply it affected me and was so blessed to find out that others in my age group, mid-50s, shared the same level of loss and grief. Totally agree. I also really enjoyed the episode with David Calcano from Fantunes or I should say episodes. The latest focusing on his book of Neil's quotes was awesome. He is definitely not boring as he had described himself. He always says he's boring. I don't understand where <laughs> he gets that from. He's far from boring. I know. I had just received my copy of that book days before the podcast dropped. I also received my copy of The Day I Was There and Misfits and Dreamers that same week. Wow. This guy buys all of our guests' books. We're like Oprah's book club for him. <laughs> Uh, I'm listening to your podcast in an odd order. I'm trying to catch up with the older album review podcasts, but the newer interview podcasts have been so great. I can't wait to catch up on all the older ones. I just keep seeing great names in your emails and I have to listen. Thanks again, guys. But a closing question. Have you ever interviewed Lex? (laughs) Really? Another request for Lex? Maybe you have, and I just missed the episode. Also, would Lex ever consider doing a YouTube video series of bass tutorials on Rush songs? I think he should. That's a great idea. He says, I am a guitarist and a bassist, and I'm pretty good at figuring out some of the songs just by ear, but some seem so complex. I'd like to see how Lex plays them. So there you go. Look, I've been talking to Lex about this for the past couple of months. He's got to come on the podcast and we'll talk about his bass playing and about Getty, right? Yeah. I think it'd be fantastic. If he wants to come on. I think I've finally cracked him. I think he's going to come on. (laughs) Finally cracked (laughs) But then it's going to blow the mystique, I think. People have have this idea about who Lex is. Well, they're going to find out exactly who he is very, very soon. I can't wait for that. (laughs) 
But today, Jer, as I mentioned, we've got another drummer, and this is going to be a fantastic conversation, I think. He's the founder of houseofdrumming.com, which is an online forum for drummers to come together and share opinions. And he's also a brilliant drummer himself, having performed with Lee Rittenauer, Jennifer Page, Celine Dion, and countless others. Steve Holmes, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Yes, thank you, sir. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jerry. Man, that bio was old. <laughs> who, who else have you performed with lately, Steve? Update your bio for us. Lately, the focus has been you know, online content, drum lessons and drum performances. And actually, I've been doing a lot of the streaming thing lately, trying that because I was pleasantly surprised, uh, believe it or not, at the quality of streaming from my iPhone. And you'd be surprised, man, the iPhone, if, if you stream from that and you put it just right next to a drum kit, it actually sounds okay. And then when you talk, it adjusts for that well, too. And that's big for drummers because usually like someone starts playing and it's all like, you know, and then they talk and, it, and it's like, it's too low. But the, the iPhone works great, actually. So I've been doing a lot of streaming lately and having fun with that. But I have a trio, too, but we haven't played together for a while because of, you know, the pandemic and stuff. But uh, we're called Altered. It's myself and um, John Flickcraft plays bass and Jeff Miley plays guitar. And we did one collab video, actually, that I was pretty happy with. That was like pro, you know, pro recorded and pro edited and shot and everything. And uh, that was super fun. So I play with those guys as well. Nice, nice. So we like to start out our guests, Steve, on the Rush Fancast, asking them their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush? And how did you become a fan? Well, at the risk of being like stereotypical, it was Tom Sawyer that brought me on. And I mean that, and it's funny because before this, I was, I, I put that on just to kind of get into the mindset, get in the mood for you guys. Mm -hmm. um, and I put that on and I was like, you know, I got all kinds of stuff going on and I'm doing work from home stuff. And I'm like, oh man, dude, can, should I even put this on? And sure enough, <laughs> Within a couple of minutes, I was like, so into it, you know, so into it. And I wanted to crank it up and I'm literally like, I'm typing and like drumming with my fingers on the keyboard and, and mouse, like as I'm typing, it has that effect on me and always did. But yeah, it was like the perfect storm. I think that that album in particular, obviously it speaks for itself, but just at that time, what the norm was then. And then here comes this thing that is special in and of itself, but it's not just what it is independently it's what it is in relation to everything else at the time you know and i talk about that about that a little bit in that neil video um but yeah it was there's just literally ahead of their time and the music on that record i just find amazing um and there's something about that song too i find it's a very unique just cool sounding song and i was super young man i was like you know i don't even know how old i was i mean i i remember legos <laughs> from that time too you know too so that's how long ago it was um, but yeah, that, that's the origin story. It was moving pictures and, uh, from there just slowly trying to learn the, you know, the, the, the timeline and spending months on each record until I just, you know, listened to them all. When did you start playing the drums? Uh, geez, man, I took an interest in like fifth grade. I associate things with what grade I was in. So like fifth <laughs> grade, I took an interest sixth grade. I got a snare drum and was learning like basic rudiments and stuff. And I was, I was into it then. And I remember it's coming back to me now. I remember like trying to memorize drum parts and air drumming and stuff without even owning drums, which is kind of interesting to, you know, think about trying to do this thing that's so physical and requires so much coordination without having the instrument to do it. You know, it, it's crazy. And that's such a, I'm fascinated by that. There's so many people that air drum. They literally made a movie about it. That's nuts. There's a movie <laughs> about air drumming to rush. I mean, obviously it's a thing that affects people period. Right. Uh, and I was definitely one of those people. And back then, 
you know, not to get all old man or whatever, but before internet and everything, it's like, you don't know who else, you know, you think maybe there's something wrong with you. Like, man, why can't, why can't I stop thinking about this? Something wrong with me, you know? And I remember the first time I got to the spectrum in Philadelphia to see Rush and I was like, oh man, you know, I see now, you know, there's like, uh, it's a group of people that are, you know, it's just like one of us, one of us, you know, but that's the origin story, moving pictures. You know, I noticed that your first show was at the Spectrum in Philadelphia on the Power Windows Tour, which was two weeks after our first show at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Two weeks apart. Pretty cool. Yes. Yes. Very cool. Very cool. And, you know, I mentioned in that video, too, the story, like, my dad was a very popular bartender. And I guess some local, you know, uh, sports celebrities and whatnot would go to these bars where he was at. And so he had managed to get Bobby Clark to get me tickets which was a big deal as a kid. I mean, I wasn't a hockey fan really. And so I was like, Bobby Clark, who's that? <laughs> but so yeah, we got tickets and, and we went and I remember, uh, yeah, like trying to walk behind the curtain and like get a look at Neil's kid before the band started. And I think it was Blue Easter Cult that opened up on that tour. Um, and, you know, just, you know, doing the things you do, you know, you know, writing down the set list and highlighting all the tunes they played in the program and buying all the t-shirts and, and that kind of thing, you know? super obsessed with them for just a long time you had been playing drums for a while by then uh, yeah at that point when power windows came out yes I, I i had a couple years behind me um but you know there's a it's interesting trying to figure out especially someone like neil obviously whose parts you know his drum parts are complex and you know there's no there's no resource to learn about that stuff and so you got to go by what you hear and what you know is possible and if you're young and you don't know what's possible you so you don't even know what kind of kit he has you know i mean i remember picturing he had this kit that was like three times bigger than it really was and yeah. you know that kind of thing it's 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 the process of being interested in something and trying to figure out what it is and your imagination fills in the gaps uh, which is something else that I'm kind of fascinated with, you know, because it applies to other things too. people that are whatever fascinated with movies or fascinated with this other thing and not knowing anything about it. And they imagine it, it's a certain way. And then you teach yourself the thing based on that way. And then you see how it really is. And you have to like adjust, you know, and Oh, it's what he doesn't have four rows of Tom Toms. I see. It's just mm -hmm. like one row, you know, that kind of thing. Well, what did you learn then from that show? Seeing him live. Um, I remember like, you know, how he would do certain, you know, his famous stuff that he did on the hi-hat, you know, where he would, he would, you know, the pss, 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 that kind of stuff he does all the time when he hits the bass drum at the same time that he hits it and then closes it and kind of watching like how he did it, like, you know, using two hands versus like one hand and filling in doubles in between and, you know, watching what symbols made what sound and you know, that kind of stuff, because on his right, there's just so many different things. Like he's got like three and four China symbols and, you know, hit the way his ride symbol is and the wind chimes throughout. There's just this big group of stuff back there. And you're like, man, what is that? <laughs> you know? And so you see, and you're like, Oh, okay. So you mentioned the video that you did on YouTube, Steve, which is the reason we found you. We saw this video on YouTube and it's fantastic tribute to Neil Peart. What made you decide to make this video? It's about 17 minutes long and it's terrific. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Uh, that was, it was super fun. Honestly, there was one of those things where, I mean, when I had heard, when I'd heard that he passed and I think that we and I'd already had plans to go to my drum rehearsal place and make a video on something. And instead of doing that, I decided to just, you know, try this thing out. Um, and I knew that other people would do it, but I, I, I don't know at the risk of sounding, however it sounds, I, I wanted to do it because I knew it needed to be done in a particular way. Uh, and if I had watched other videos that didn't do it in that particular way, I would be like, you know, I'd be like the fan in the stands going, oh, I can do this better. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I wanted to like, I wanted to avoid that, 
that in the first place just by doing it, you know. And, you know, sometimes you get an idea about something and you try to think, you know, how it would work. And there's not enough there to, to spend the time doing it because it is really time consuming. I mean, that was like a, all my spare time in like a month, took me like a month to do it. And any spare hour I had, I, I put in that pretty much. Um, but I knew it would be cool. I had like a vision for it. And, and it's honestly, there's value in having the opportunity to tell people about it and people that may not know. That's why I named it what I named it, because I'm sure there's tons of people out there that like, I keep hearing about this guy. Why is he so special? You know? And so I wanted to just clear cut, like, this is why he's special, you know, uh, and just kind of outline it. And so that was super fun. And we wouldn't be able to do it without the internet, obviously, because all kinds of pictures and stuff, and you can just grab footage and, you know, there's gray areas there and, and all that that entails. But, you know, the lyrics and, and the drumming and the history of the band and, and, you know, how unique they are, uh, and how unique he is and and that kind of thing. I, I wanted to just kind of stick the flag in here and be like, boom, this is the definitive video that I wanted people to see and refer to in the future. Oh, you're talking about Neil? You should check out that video. Like I wanted it to be that, you know? Um, so yeah, th- th- that's that's why I did it. You know, in the, uh, in the video, you mentioned that um, Neil gave a lot of drummers their identity. And it reminded me of a quote that I read that Neil said that at some point in your drumming career, you have to stop kind of sounding like your influences and start sounding like yourself. So what is, what is the drummer identity that you pulled out of Neil and made, made yourself? Um, well, that's a good question. Uh, well, for a while there, there was no drumming identity. Like I had no drumming identity. Uh, and I would pause to say that I do now. I mean, I, I think I do, but but you know, I would tread lightly because I'm I'm one of these musicians that is so affected by idols, you know. Um, but after a while, if you listen to enough things, uh, you start to come up with your own ideas and you kind of forge your own voice, you know. But to answer your question, um, you know, starting out with rock and roll has been very beneficial because after a while I kind of departed from that and I got into like jazz and fusion and other styles and stuff. Uh, and then I discovered that other guys that were into that jazz and fusion, they kind of lacked a particular energy or balls, if I may, you know, or a certain aggression, let's say, you know what I mean? A certain aggression that is particularly useful on the drums. You know what I mean? Drums are almost <laughs> associated with, with that kind of energy. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that benefited from starting with rock and started with Rush was like, I had that kind of hard hitting, youthful, bashing, aggressive energy for years before I departed and got into other stuff. But that part, uh, that aggression and that energy has always stayed with me. And I like that now. I, I, I find that that, you know, it's a good thing to have, you know, playing with that because you can still maintain that energy and, and, you know, you don't have to hit as hard as you can, but you can still kind of convey that aggressive energy that comes from, from rock and, and, and Russia. And Neil, Neil hits, he, he hit really hard, you know, he was not a finesse player uh, and watching him and learning from that stuff. And literally like, I want to say training, it didn't feel like training because it was just, it was my passion. It was my hobby. Like I would just go home when I was young and just playing along with Rush Records was an activity that I did all the time. What do you, I'm going to go up to my room, going to put on the headphones and I'll create some, my own custom Rush set list, or maybe just turn on a live album. Like I'm playing the whole show. And I had the drum parts memorized. Like I still do really like within, within reason, you know what I mean? In terms of accuracy, I'd say like 85, 90% accuracy. I have all the drum parts memorized from 
fly by night up to, I would say, hold your fire, maybe even presto, you know, like note for note for the most part. And so that was how I started was just drumming along with those records and hitting hard and, you know, you know, getting, you know, getting the benefits of, you know, Neil strengths, which are like, you know, what I call the more like single stroke oriented to get it, to get it, to get it, to get it, you know, the kind of single stroke, I want to say rigid, but, you know, just his, his brand of phrasing, you know, that's how I learned all my drum fills, you know what I mean? And so it's easy to do that stuff. It's easy to recognize that stuff. And it's easy to maybe even sprinkle a little bit of that into my playing now. You know, my people might be like, whoa, what was that hi-hat thing you did? Oh, that, that's like a Neil thing, you know? And, you know, some some people may not, may not, you know, be hip to that. You know, I've spoken to guys after he passed. They're like, oh, I just don't get it. And I'd be like, man, listen to the drum solo on exit stage left. You know, <laughs> like who else can, you know, there's not a lot of guys that can pull that off, you know? So how exciting was it in the 80s when a new album came out, like Hold Your Fire, just to hear the new textures and sounds that, that Neil threw in? from his trip to Asia, let's say on Tai Shan. How exciting was that for you as a drummer to hear the new album? It was, I mean, every album was a huge event. Um, I mean, we didn't know when they were coming out. I remember one time, like we, we knew kind of like, Oh yeah, I think, you know, you see the video on MTV and again, like pre-internet. And so you don't, you don't know. I, I we didn't know the release date. And I remember being pleasantly surprised. I was at like a flea market with my cousin Rob, and I think Distant Early Warning have, had been given airplay on MTV, and so we we knew it was coming out. We didn't know when, and it was there for sale, and so we weren't expecting. And we were like, "Oh my God, the new rain's out already!" Ah, you know. So that was like that took up the whole day. Was just getting that in, and the excitement of getting it and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's like if you have a favorite artist and you're you're trying to learn everything that they do and see what they have to say, and you know, a record doesn't come out for like two or three years. So it, you might as well be in the desert looking for water. And then you stumble on this oasis and you spend two years with the oasis until you drink it all. And then you have to wait for the next oasis. You know, that's basically what happens. Um, and, you know, you know, to answer your question, it's interesting hearing things that, oh, that's the fill from this other record. Oh, oh, this is similar to the to the fill on this other record, but he added a thing, and so you start to recognize the patterns. That's a big part of it, right? Like that ride symbol pattern I talk about in the mm-hmm. in the video. Like literally, it's a, his signature pattern, right? And and that's why I mentioned, okay, that here's the first song that he did it on, and then he, you know, he continues to redo it. And after a while, honestly, it's kind of like, okay, you know, it's time for a new <laughs> time for a new ride back. <laughs> but but whatever, you know, it's uh, that that's also part of the that's also part of it is you know seeing the seeing the good, but also maybe seeing the things that that maybe aren't aren't good, you know, at the risk of of sounding blah blah blah. But yeah, it, it was amazing hearing the new records, getting excited, you know, dissecting the layers, reading the lyrics because I knew he wrote all the lyrics, you know. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned "Hold Your Fire" because. Um, uh what's the song before mission every day we're stranded in a time capsule turn the page yes turn the page like he does the thing you know i think on the on the second chorus uh that he does at the end of subdivisions where he goes back and forth from his ride symbol to his china symbol and stuff and that's that's a neil thing through and through and so that that's exciting like oh it's the thing from subdivisions but it's kind of slower and and that kind of thing and then him switching drums too. hold your fire was the first record that he used ludwig on um i think i hope i'm not yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the case. And so that was another big deal. Oh, the drums sound amazing. It's his new drums and and that kind of thing, you know? So yeah, it, it was incredibly exciting to, to 
to get the new record and dissect and look at the I'm sure you guys did this too you know like oh let's check out the fold out artwork with the mm -hmm. picture of the guy like yep. you know throwing the ball throwing the fireballs and like oh there's a little picture of a dog in the background that's from signals and <laughs> and and, and, and the fire hydrant or whatever you know what i mean it's like it, it's not just i mean that's the beauty of getting into to something you know and and you know at a time where like records and tapes and albums and stuff, it's like, it's not just the music, it's a concept, it's a group of people, it's a work of art that you can, that is tangible, that you can hold in your hand and you put in the tape deck and you, you fold out the thing and you examine it and that's all gone, which is fine. It is what it is. I'm not one of these guys that's like, oh, it used to be this and it was so much better. I mean, it was just different and that had strengths and weaknesses and things today have their own strengths and weaknesses, you know? Yeah, I can still, I still wish I could sit down and listen to an entire album and not move you know for 45 minutes like so you yeah. know the, open up the open up the, the album cover on your lap and just kind of stare at it <laughs> for the entire length of the album read the special thanks and you know yep. who's who's skip gildersleeve you know like, <laughs> who's this guy you know uh, i think i remember his name from the last liner notes you right. know why is it brought to you by the letter r or whatever yes so what about neil's drum setup you mentioned in the video th how important neil's kit setup was to the way he played and he set up the kit for how he wanted to play not not the other way around is that correct yeah i would say so i mean i, I mean this is just an outsider looking and obviously um i could be totally wrong about that but but i mean it i mean what is true what we do know for sure is that i mean he said his, he, honestly his drum kit was very unorthodox in several ways several ways like first of all like you know, he had those four concert toms on his left, right? Six, eight, 10, 12, okay? Concert toms means there's no drum head on the bottom. Then he had three rack toms in front of him, which do, did have drum drum heads on the bottom, right? And then he had like a floor tom and then his gong bass drums, right? So the last drum in his concert toms was a 12 inch. And the first drum in his rack toms was 12. So we had two 12s right next to each other. And the concert tom 12 was, I think it was tuned lower than the first rack toms. So the point being is when he did these rolls, like the like the big rolls starting at the six and going all the way down, he actually had to skip a drum because mm. tonally the, the, the interval was different. They weren't all descending in tone, in other words. One was actually higher than the other. And so he had to skip it. Um, and having three rack toms in the front is unorthodox because the, the standard thing to do is if you have two bass drums, which obviously Neil had, and the bass drums have arms on them and each arm holds two toms, then you would have four toms in front of you, like 90% of the kits, like when you buy it, like that's what you're going to get, right? Because like one bass drum is two toms and the second bass drum is four toms. Um, and so he, you know, he made a, a lot of effort to to set it up the way he did. And it was always like that too. Like if you look on the, all the worlds of stage and like the 2112 tour and that stuff, like when he added those high toms, that's how they were then. Like he had four on the left and three in the front. And so I think he put a lot of thought into it, you know, and even where he put the symbols and, you know, the red symbol being like horizontal by his floor tom and stuff, although that's kind of the go-to thing, but, you know, having the splash in the front and the, and the crashes on the right. And it's just like, I don't know, you watch these concert videos and he was so, you know, like at one with his kit uh, in terms of, how he played and their drum parts in particular um, because the, you know, Rush does this thing that no other band does. And I've been meaning to like, I don't know, no one talks about this, but like Rush does this thing that where <laughs> they have passages where they just play like what I call hits or what a musician would call like ensemble figures. So it's like, we're just all going to play one note together. And he will just bash the cymbal. It's like, bah, right. Like, <laughs> like that, true. like that's a, like that's a hit. Right. But they would, they would do, and they would do, they would take entire parts of songs and he's not playing a groove. 
They're just playing these hits together. Bah, 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 bah. You know, like in Free Will, for example. You know, they do that all over the place. And and he was beating the crap out of his cymbals. You know what I mean? I can't even imagine how, how many he went he went through, you know, and it's always like a big bass drum, you know, underneath a, a big crash cymbal together. And and I remember that was one of the things I noticed when I started getting away from rock and roll was like these guys that would hit. I'm like, wait, you're hitting a crash cymbal without a bass drum? Can you do that? Is that allowed? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's literally my reaction because I didn't have a teacher at first. And it was actually my, my sister's boyfriend who was coincidentally into Neil and stuff. And, and him and I would geek out all the time. And he was like, yeah, you always got a bass drum underneath the crash cymbal. And that's how I learned. And that's how Neil does it. Like, Neil, like, I can't think of a single, a single instance of Neil hitting a crash cymbal without a bass drum underneath. You know, which is pretty crazy. But yeah, that, that's, that's how he set up his kit. And I think there was a lot of thought behind it in that regard. Is it unusual for a drummer to change his kit like for every tour or something like that? Well, I mean, he kept the same drums for, for some tours. And this is, I mean, this is interesting because, you know, when big musicians switch gear, I'm sure a lot of people talk about it. Oh my God, you were, you know, you were faithful to this and now you're switching. And, and you know, a lot of people talk about it as you can imagine. And, and Neil actually was faithful to his brands for many years. You know, he's, he's not one of these guys that would switch all the time like some guys do. But from my limited experience as a musician, I can totally understand and relate to needing a change because, I mean, you look at these tour dates. I mean, you think about it. You play in that kit, that music for whatever, 100 shows for whatever, how many over, how many time, how much time. And it's like, okay, stop the tour, record it. It's time to be creative again. Let's come up with something new. And so you need all the help you can get in that regard. And so sure, a new drum kit, or hey, let's make sure we're using the best drums there are out there. I remember when he switched from Tamman and Ludwig, it was a huge deal. There was a thing on Modern Drummer, they had a contest where they gave away his old kit. I don't know if you guys know that, there was a writing contest. Oh no, it was a drum solo contest, sorry. He had one contest for writing and they did another contest where you send a tape of a drum solo because I entered that contest actually. <laughs> um, but I remember, he, you know, because obviously the man wrote a ton of articles and stuff. And whenever there's a contest with him, like someone, like he wrote the description, he wrote everything. And he was like, we wanted to make sure we were using the best drums we could. And, the, you know, they, they tested all the different drum companies. And I don't think they all uh, participated, but but obviously Ludwig did. And then he, he switched to Ludwig. And on the Hold Your Fire tour, the concert toms, he put heads on the bottom. And so they were regular toms, those high toms, which was another like, oh, man, they're not concert toms anymore. Ah, you know? <laughs> That's what we were doing back then, you know. I'm so glad you described what a concert tom was because I hadn't. I'm never knew what they were yes it's the drum without the head on the bottom and what's the difference in sound between the concert toms and the regular toms well the regular toms the, the bottom head you know believe it or not it actually resonates a lot when you hit the top head and how the bottom head is tuned in conjunction to how the top head is tuned will create a unique uh tone to the tom you know what i mean so if they're both tuned to the same versus like the, the bottom one being higher than the top one etc how you tune both of those heads in relation to each other will have a drastic effect on how the Tom Tom sounds. So you mentioned Neil's fills in the video and how they're just at a whole other level. How hard is it to wrap your head around that as a drummer, just how crazy those fills are? I mean, it depends on where you are as a drummer for some guys, some of that stuff might be easy, but when I say easy, it's like easy in the way that we know how to light fire now because someone else invented it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's that kind. It's like it's that kind of easy. You know. Up until one point, it was impossible, right? Yes. And then somebody did it. Well, that's the nature of being a pioneer, which I also talk about in the video. It's okay. Okay, do this thing that someone else is doing. Okay, no problem. Okay, be the guy that comes up with it. 
You know what I mean? Like I almost put this in the video, but you know, Neil went through his phase where he was on to like Buddy Rich and stuff, and he produced those Burning for Buddy records. And in the liner notes of the of the Burning for Buddy CD, you know, there's a double double page picture of Neil of I'm sorry, Buddy's kit, and there's a quote on there, which I think Neil put, and and it says, "Genius is the fire that lights itself." And I think that's fascinating because that totally applies to Neil as well. Totally apply. He doesn't sound like anybody. Neil doesn't sound like anybody. I'm sure. I mean, he, you know, he says he has influences and stuff. And you know, he was into Keith Moon. And you know, I read that you know Tommy Aldridge was in a band that opened up for for Rush for a while, and that's how he learned. You know, like his famous quads. You know, the double bass thing. It's like the thing he does at the end of the Tom Sawyer drum solo. You know, with the double bass of whatever. Like those are called quads. And he said that he learned them from Tommy Aldridge, which is crazy. You know what I mean? But like what Neil has done with them, that's the one thing. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, you know, I, I learned about, you know, onions from this guy and that guy's not doing anything with them. But I have taken the onion and I have turned it into this amazing dish that everybody loves. <laughs> A blooming onion. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's not just like, it's not just, you know, coming up with stuff on your own. It's also taking stuff that other people doing it, but doing something with it that all that that original source is not even doing. Mm. you know um but to get back to your question i mean like you know you need a, a, a fairly big kit to you know to do that stuff although i was thinking the other day what it might be like to play in a rush tribute band with my current setup i have a four-piece setup now i have literally two <laughs> tom-toms you know what i mean uh which i'm happy with but if i had to i could do it i could i could play it you know a rush song on my kid if i needed to do you know i mean they would i would just be playing more strokes on less drums you know because <laughs> instead of like two two strokes on 10 toms it would just be like you know whatever, you know, four strokes on three times and, and what have you. But yeah, I mean, that stuff is, is pretty difficult. You know, there's ton, lots of videos of people doing play-alongs and stuff. So obviously it's possible, you know what I mean? But again, it's one thing to come up with the stuff and make music on your own. You know what I mean? And sit in a room with, with two different guys and be like, all right, here's the lyrics. All right, here's the music. Okay, cool. Here's the drum parts. You know, that's different than let me just listen to the recording and memorize the drum parts and record myself and put it on YouTube. Right. You know? I remember another quote from Neil. He was talking about Eric Clapton's reaction to seeing Jimi Hendrix for the first time. And Clapton said he wanted to go home and burn all of his guitars because Hendrix was so good. But Neil said he never felt like that when he saw somebody better than him. He just made him want to go home and practice even more. Yeah. To just to be, because he was just so inspired by someone playing at such a high level. Did you feel like that when you were playing drums? When you were learning how to play drums? Uh, I can I can think of uh, you know a small a small amount of times where I, I'd hear something and you know get discouraged. You know, I mean, I kind of felt the same way. You know, I I I it, I would more often than not get inspired than I would like get discouraged. Um, and it's not just a matter of you know because musicians are competitive by nature, um, but there's something very there's something very important that happens when musicians watch other musicians. It's not just artistic inspiration, but there's a very specific thing. Uh, and this is what happened to me when I got into like jazz and, and fusion and stuff is like the, you realize that what is possible is different because you would not believe that someone can do a thing unless you saw it yourself. Like it's basically the music, the musical version of watching someone lift up a car. Hmm. You're like, well, wow, I would not think that was possible unless I saw someone do it. And until that moment, I would say that it is not possible because I've never seen it happen. And of course, I myself can't do it. You know what I mean? But as generations go, you know, as generations happen, you know, each generation is going to have their own batch of, of great, amazing players and probably 
better than the previous because that's just how it is with us. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so when the new generation started coming out, you know, you see guys and you're like, wow, I had no idea, you know, and it, it's just part of it, you know, and it's not good, bad, better or worse. But if you compare like, you know, whatever the Michael Jordan of his generation versus the, whoever the Michael Jordan is of his generation, the chances are, you know, the, the late, the, the guy that came later is going to be much better. Mm. You know what I mean? But, but it's not a contest. You know, there's something to be said for significance. You know, the yeah. Beatles are significant. You know, I don't like the Beatles really, but they're significant. And I acknowledge that, you know, it's a, you got to look at it from all different ways. Another thing you touch on in the video, Steve, is how musical Neil was as a drummer. How rare is that for a drummer to be as musical as Neil was? Well, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty rare. I mean, it's funny. I mean, that that's kind of a general term, like, like being musical, but, but because it, it, it's interesting now thinking about it, I mean, for, for every way that I could tell you that he was musical, I could probably tell you a way that he wasn't musical really. Um, but I mean, obviously this, this is subjective and, and Rush is an exotic animal. If if anyone else played drums for Rush, it would be bad, you know. If anyone else played, like that's just so so. It's like it's like PB and J, you know what I mean? It's like you know, yeah. butter, it's like if you put butter on it, like butter is fine, butter is good, but that that does not belong there. And this thing is now completely different and much worse because <laughs> because you added it, you know what I mean? But I'm I'm trying to remember the context in the video it was probably you know with all the melodic instruments that he had on his kit, you know, with his orchestral percussion stuff with the uh you know the tubular bells and the xylophone and the crotales and 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 all that stuff uh and doubling the melody with uh interludes like when you think about like okay 1977 like what's the norm what's the standard right and then there's three guys on there right the trees you know <laughs> and you know right. then here he is or circumstances you know where you know they right, you know during the bridge the, the the in the thing in the middle where he's doubling the melody on a xylophone you yeah. know what i mean i can't even imagine like the amount of effort that it takes and the, the creativity to to a be the guy that does that and uh, you know and be like be in a group where, where guys are open to that kind of thing. hey that's cool let's let's do that you know alex come up with a melody and, and i'll double it and teach it to me and, and let's rehearse it and then now we have to you know we're going to go on the road and the, you know we have to buy microphones for all this stuff and the sound guy has to understand that the xylophone in this rock and roll band needs to be loud enough <laughs> so that the audience can hear it in the middle of this incredibly loud tune like so many things need to happen for mm. that to work you know what i mean and that's that's why i call it it's a perfect storm you know it, it rushes a perfect storm of those kind of things yeah and one of the things other things you talked about it's something i always talk about when we're choosing like favorite songs and stuff like that some of my i choose some songs as my favorite only because of the way that neil plays his hi-hat like what well i'm curious uh well like la villa of course Villa yeah. he is I'm just enraptured every time I listen to that song, just listening to the, the precision and listening to the clarity of his hi-hat. Yes, I agree. And that record in particular. And it's funny because that's why I put, yes, in, in the section of the video where I talk about the hi-hat, there was a very particular snippet that I wanted to in the background there. And it's from, it's from Hemispheres. And it's a very, uh, very particular groove. And again, it's that thing. It's that pss, pss, you know, sound that Neil yeah. made with his hi-hat. And he, you know, a lot of guys, you know, 90% of drummers are just going to be like, all right, well, it's the end of the fourth bar. And on the end of four, I'm just going to do that. And that's, that's it. That's the extent of my creativity with his voice. Yeah. But Neil found these voices on the kid and the extent of his creativity was behemoth, you know? And that's what I, I mean, getting back to your earlier question, Steve, about being musical. I mean, that's, that, that also applies, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, cause again, like you give the, you give 10 different people the same, 
ingredients and they're going to make 10 different things. And, and of course, you know, Neil's version would be the great version. And that's why, <laughs> that's why we're talking about him. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, and that applies to the question about the kit too. It's okay. We have these musical ideas. And so, all right, well, I need a drum kit to do these things. Not, I want a drum kit so I can whatever, you know, be fancy. And I just want a lot of drums because like he had musical reasons, you know, to motivate him behind those decisions. Um, and I agree with you. I mean, that example, that whole record, um, you know, his, his use of the hi-hat on there and Lavia, you know, his, the, you know, the breakdown groove at the beginning of the drum solo with the groove in seven, you know, that's the thing. A lot of guys learn how to play an odd meter and I've spent a lot of time practicing that stuff too. But, you know, because of the conventional methods in which people practice these things, they tend to sound similar. And Neil didn't practice playing in seven the way that most musicians would, where you'd subdivide things into groups of twos and threes. You know, that's the common method for musicians playing anything and odd. It's like, well, if it's five, then you just do two or three, or two and three, or three and two, blah, blah, blah. But Neil's like, no. I mean, I'm speculating at this point, but I, I feel fairly comfortable doing it because of the uniqueness of what he played. It it had to have come from that kind of thing. You know what I mean? And 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 I remember it didn't dawn on to me until much later that that breakdown groove is just the same groove as the main melody, just with less notes. You know, you know, the doots, that's doots, doots, Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's basically the same groove as the main part of the song. It's just a quieter, you know, less notey version of it, you know? Yeah, and it's crazy to maintain the 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 accuracy of those parts too on every show, you know, to be so intricate and then every show played exactly the same way is also nuts, you know, because my favorite version of La Via is on Exit Stage Left. I mean, the guitar solo in there gives me chills every time, every time, you know, the way it builds. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of people criticize Neil for playing too much, but that's a good example of him not playing a lot. <laughs> it is. And making it very, very interesting still. Yes, I agree. Um, and, and, you know, the intention of that particular part is to break it down and, like, come to nothing so that you can build upon it, right? Uh, but, I mean, in an but instrumental tune, that's the time to play stuff. You know, when I mentioned before, like, you know, there might be examples of Neil maybe not being as musical as he could be. You know, it's times where, you know, there's vocals, you know, it's like, okay, it's the verse, you know, let's, let's take it easy. You know, it's the verse, you know, um, there's plenty of time for fills when we transition to the chorus or during the guitar solo or during the outro or during the intro, you know what I mean? But it's the verse. Let's, let's take it easy. But again, that's all subjective. You touched on, on this a little bit earlier, Steve, and also mentioned this in your video that Neil kind of changed the way you looked at your ride symbol. Can you explain what exactly you meant by that? Well, I mean, again, that, that pattern that he came up with and the way that he, I mean, that, that pattern was, was part of it. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to sound like that period, the end, because that's just part of, you know, having a musical idol and, and being young. And I actually bought that the, I had a 22 inch ping ride because I saw that that's what he had on his Elgin poster years later. And sure enough, you know, you record yourself and you play the thing and you're like, Oh my God, it sounds like that. Oh, I did it. Oh, you know, <laughs> it whatever. It's like such a thing. And the, so you just base kind of what you want to go on off that if you're that type of player. And, uh, and I am, but also like, you know, again, like talking about La Via, um, you know, there's uh, after the guitar solo when they build and then it gets quiet. You know, doo, 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 you know, and mm -hmm. he's, he starts on the hat and then he plays this. So he's just like, and then he goes to the ride. And what he plays on the ride there was also like, oh, man, this sounds like the coolest thing. That's almost like his version of like finessing it. You know, some guys just switch to the ride because that's what you do. He had a very particular way. I'm sure he hunted down for the perfect ride symbol for him and he played it in a very particular way. You know, um, 
and that was the sound that I loved, and that was the sound that I tried to achieve back then. You also mentioned about, you know, not only was he a great, uh, you know, lyricist and a drummer, but also a writer and just a keen observer of everything around him. What do those things mean to you as a drummer that, you know, they're separate from drumming, but what, what do those things bring to drumming? Well, I mean, I don't know that they bring, they didn't bring anything to drumming in particular, um, but I just find, you know, I mean, again, I've never met the guy. I've just, you know, heard a lot about him and seen a lot of footage. And, and I know people that know him and I've heard firsthand stories, et cetera, and tons of interviews and stuff. But point being is like, I just find him to be a fascinating human being. You know what I mean? Um, I always think it's funny to say like the VH1 behind the music documentary on Rush would be so boring because there's no like, oh, this is the part where my brother-in-law managed me and took all my money. Or this is the part where we all turn into drug addicts and things fall apart for 10 right. years and then we do the reunion. Like they don't have that. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I think that's interesting, you know, but when you think about when you're interested in the music and you're interested in what the music is saying and then you get a sense of, you know, that's the output, right? The music is the output. And you think about, you get a sense of the input. Well, what is what is what's happening to this person? What does this person see in here to make them write this song? That's what I find fascinating. And the more and more we heard about Neil and how smart he was, and you know the the the, the traveling is just nuts. You know what I mean? All that motorcycle riding, all that cycle riding, and going to like he didn't ride his bike through China. You know, like <laughs> it, like seriously, like not through it, but like I I read that he took a you know a cycling trip in China. Like that's just nuts. You know what I mean? And so that kind of it's like oh of course. Of course he did. Of course he was that guy. When you think about these lyrics and these tunes, and then you start to get like a bigger picture, you know, it's like, that's another thing. If you're into, into musicians and fascinated with how they do, and then you learn about their personalities, it's like, oh, well that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like a Jaco yeah. Pastorius type, you know what I mean? There's like another, like one of a kind, amazing game changing musician. Then you hear about the kind of the kind of person he was. And it's like, that also gels with that. You know what I mean? Sometimes in a negative way, because, you know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the story of Jacob Pistorius or whatever, but, but, you know, he, he, from, from all, from what I've read and, and heard, like, you know, there was some, there was some mental health issues and, and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, there's a price for that kind of genius. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There, there's a price for it from, from what I've read. I mean, obviously, I mean, I don't know, but, and I'm kind of fascinated at that. You know what I mean? And, you know, we've watched Neil burn really bright for a long time. And it, and you can kind of see a little bit of that in, 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 you know, those kind of folks. And, and I'm also fascinated in that. So it's not so much like, how does it affect the drumming? It's more like, wow, what an amazing human being, mm, yeah. you know what I mean? And we get insight into that through all this lyrics and all this drumming and all this footage of, you know, of interviews and watching him, you know, just do his thing, you know? What about Neil's work with Freddie Gruber? I mean, he famously went to Freddie and Freddie pretty much tore him down and started him from scratch. How crazy is it for, for a guy as accomplished as Neil to, to go to someone like Freddie, first of all, and then let Freddie just rebuild him from, from scratch like that? Yeah, I'm upset about that. Really? <laughs> I'm upset that that happened, actually. Uh, and I remember reading about it like then, like in drumming magazines and stuff, you know, and, and it, it, that all stemmed from when he was producing those Burning for Buddy recordings and Steve Smith came in and did his tracks and Neil was incredibly impressed with Steve Smith because, you know, at one point those guys were kind of in the same circles of rock and roll in seventies and eighties and, and stuff. But Steve just went on to study and he really like launched like as a player, as a musician, 
like and you know and honing his technique and stuff uh and and neil saw that and and steve i, I wish i could be like why did you tell neil this but you know steve <sighs> was like oh it's because of freddie you know because steve studied with freddie and whatever and so then neil chases this thing and this is the part that fascinates me because in my opinion i mean like the extreme analogy of that is satan being like tell me more about this jesus guy <laughs> <laughs> Like no, like like you need to be Satan. Like you need, like you need you need to have your place in the world. You know what I mean? And this is why I say like it upsets me because it's like I mean it doesn't really upset me, but you know it's like it's like oh Michael Jordan's gonna try to play baseball. It's like okay, I'm sure you're decent at it. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to see it. All right. What I remember from that is that you were super rich and you bought buses for your teams. Nothing about what you played. You know. Uh, <laughs> And it's the same kind of thing and so he was kind of curious about that and and you know incredibly talented or it's like elvis like oh man i'm gonna try to do country music <laughs> that's an accurate analogy and when you watch you know videos of neil playing like this big band stuff you know what i mean uh like it's it's novel and it's neat but i would suggest that his strengths don't serve him as well in that context you know did you find that the, the drumming on the albums after that was subpar uh well I mean, again, it's all subjective, right? Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, no, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say subpar. I don't think that's a good descriptor. Um, but I mean, at that, I mean, at, at every musician's, you know, life cycle, if, if you, if you play until you can't play anymore, which is what he did, which is amazing, right? An amazing accomplishment. You're going to start repeating yourself. It's just inevitable, right? Uh, and so at that point, you know, it's like, okay, well, yeah, there's the ride pattern. Oh, and okay, there's the back and forth from the China thing. And there's the drum fill that basically consists of, you know, to get it that, get it that, 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 you know, you know, one of the two flavors, you know what I mean? Uh, and so after a while, you know, the mystery kind of goes away and you start to, you start to see the patterns. And that may be a bummer from strictly like a, a musician standpoint, but then, you know, there's music. This song is great. This music reaches me. I'm having an emotional reaction to this music. You know, this is a cool concept album. You know what I mean? I can't wait to go see them live. You know what I mean? There's other things besides that. Um, but I wouldn't say it was subpar. It was just, you know, again, I, I try to avoid like, oh, this is better than that and that kind of thing. It's just, it's more like this thing has strengths and weaknesses. This other thing has its strengths and weaknesses and we just compare and discuss. Mm. You know what I mean? That's how I stay out of trouble anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we stay out of trouble. What about the fact that Neil was, was not improvisational in any way? Everything was structured. Everything was planned out. How rare is that as a drummer, a rock drummer? It's not that rare. Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, the technical busyness, it was, is the staple of Rush. And they were the kind of band that was like, we want to recreate this note for note live. All right. That was what they wanted to do. And so they did. And, you know, they, they were really good at it. And, and so that's how they were. And so impro improvising was not important to them, it would seem, <laughs> you know, um, and and it's it's kind of interesting, like, you, you know, you may agree or disagree, but it's like when, you know, the, these amazing, you know, people that are amazing at a thing and they almost seem like immortal because they're doing it in a way that no one else can do. And then when they stray from that method and they start doing something that's kind of outside that, like, you know, when they, you know, the rush, they would do these little improvised things at the beginnings of tunes, you know what I mean? Like on Exit Stage Left, the beginning of Jacob's Ladder, you know, they when he introduces the tune, they're li they're literally improvising this little this little ditty, or you know, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, and it's and it, for a second there, you're kind of like, wow, that doesn't sound like Rush. That sounds <laughs> they almost appear mortal, you know what I mean? It's kind of interesting, 
but I mean, you know, to answer your question, you know, improvisation, it's not, it, it obviously wasn't that important to them, nor is it a big part of rock and roll, really. I mean, it it is to a certain degree, uh, depending upon, like, say, more so in blues and stuff. But that was another thing that appealed to me when I started to get into jazz and fusion. It's all about improvising with that stuff, which I find more, I find personally more gratifying um, because every tune is different. I mean, the, the melody is played the same, but when it comes time to solo, it's completely different. I mean, and everyone's playing different things, not just the soloists, the people backing up the soloists. You know, you have to reinvent yourself every time you play a jazz solo, literally. That's crazy. That's, yeah. that, I found that to be difficult. That's what I was like, whoa, this is difficult. Yeah. And then you try doing it. You know what I mean? Like jazz drumming is incredibly difficult to learn. It's even more difficult to play well. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even claiming that I can't. I just have some, you know, insight into what it takes to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like it's walking a high wire, right? You know, honestly, I mean, you know, the the, I mean, anyone that wants to play jazz drumming, you are going to have to break down barriers of what what's called limb independence. You know, because when someone, for example, someone that doesn't know anything about drumming and they try to play like a basic rock beat, it's like, okay, you want me to play these notes in the hi hat and like, you know, two and four on my snare drum and one and three with my bass drum, so like, boom, stats, boom, stats. It's like, oh my god, that's incredibly difficult. You know what I mean? Jazz drumming is like that, like times a hundred, hmm. you know, uh, because one hand has to play this, you know, like the swing pattern, you know, it's ding, 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 ding. And all the, you have to basically practice doing that and be able to play anything else with the remaining three limbs without stopping the right hand. Then hmm. you got to do it in a way that feels good and relaxed. Then you got to do that at all different tempos and different volumes. You know what I mean? And, and, and the more things you add to that list, the less and less people that can do it. You know what I mean? It's crazy. So Steve, fast forward 20, 50 years from now, how is Neil remembered in the drum community? Is he up there with Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, all the greats? Yes, for sure. For sure, without a doubt. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, and it's, it, I don't know, it's just kind of, it's fascinating, man. Like the, the effect on, on pop culture. I mean, that's one of the things that, uh, that, that, that fascinates me is like a lot of non-musicians and non-drummers, they've heard that name. You know, maybe they heard it mispronounced because <laughs> we all thought it was, <laughs> we all thought it was pert for a long time, but yeah. you know, we now know that it's peert. Right. Um, but point being is like, you know, I mean, like you know, penetrating pop culture, like whatever, Family Guy, and you know, the movies, you know, the movies where they they go to the concert and stuff, and what's the movie where they all go to the concert? They play in the garage. I love you, man. Yes, there's a, you know that kind of thing I, I find interesting. So when you breach that like you know circle of you know when you break out of your lane, if you will, and it's like okay, well everyone's heard of you now. Right. You know, it's kind of crazy, but yeah, to answer your question, I mean, yeah, he's, he's definitely up there with all those guys. And that's, you know, we talked about drumming identity before, and that's why I opened the video with that. Like literally people that, that play, play instruments, you know, there was a time where they didn't. So what was it that made you want to? And that's why I mentioned like, cause there's a lot of, a lot of famous drummers now that they all mention that Beatles performance on Ed Sullivan. They're like, Oh, I saw that. And I knew I wanted to do it, you know, and that's why I said, well, like, okay, well, that's what's going to happen with Neil. There's going to be tons of guys, myself included, that are going to be like, oh, that's what I want to do, mm. you know, and he's always going to be that, you know. So, Steve, why don't you tell us about your website, houseofdrumming.com? It's been around for a long time now, you know, um, in the uh, in the mid 90s, you know, I was lucky I got a jump start on the Internet, you know, right when it was kind of getting big, you know, I had like Earthlink dial up you know, <laughs> from, from my small apartment in Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to kind of combine, you know, the, the drumming thing with the internet thing. And, you know, before I had the domain, I actually had, you guys might remember if you sign up with an ISP, you get some free web space. 
mm-hmm. you know, and House of Drumming used to be located at like, you know, earthlink.net forward slash tilde, my username, you know, <laughs> right. That was, that was the web address, but, but, but whatever, you know, there wasn't a lot of resources out there on the drumming that I, that I was and am currently interested in, you know, um, you know, the, the guys that are currently, you know, my heroes, you know, these guys, Dave Weckl and Vinnie Caluda and Steve Smith and, you know, these kind of guys that I'm into now. Um, so I wanted to create a site for that to share, you know, with other people and, and, uh, you know, share the recordings that I had and just, you know, interact with other fans about that stuff as well, you know? Um, so that, that's how it started. And it's been up ever since. I mean, I, I thought about taking it down because I mean, now everyone's on, you know, I hate to say it, but you know, you know, Facebook is the new, it's the place where kind of people interact, you know, but I leave it up and I, and I go there a lot and I, and I, and I maintain it because there is a group of people there, myself included that, you know, that's just, they've been there for so long and there's things that you can only find there. And, you know, it's like, there's something significant about being there you know, for, for so long, especially when the context is the internet because it's so new, you know what I mean? Um, and it's pretty amazing, you know, like you kind of forget that there's real people behind it, you know, like a, a group of people on, on House of Drumming, they actually bought me a bass drum years and years ago, which I was just so honored and, and floored by because I'd mentioned on there that I had a 24, I had a, my I initially I ordered a 24 inch bass drum because of the rocks thing, because with Neil. And then later on, once I started doing gigs, <laughs> I was like, well, this is silly. I don't need this. <laughs> I'm not playing the spectrum anytime soon. And so you go to these coffee shops and stuff and musicians are looking at your kit funny. And I'm like, what? I'm into Neil. Give me a break. You know, the point being is like, you know, they all got together and they, you know, chipped in and got me this drum. And, you know, it's a, uh, it's pretty amazing to, to, to be part of a community like that. And they all have that thing in common and they all feel so passionate and strong about it, you know, which, you know, we all do. And I think that's just super amazing. Well, Steve, we really, really appreciate your insights on Neil Peart today. Truly fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us on the Rush Fancast. Yes, man. It's uh, it was a pleasure and I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much. So Jerry, I think it's safe to say that we can never talk to too many drummers. Is that true? <laughs> I guess that's true. Yes. What an incredible conversation. I mean, Steve yeah. knows so much about drumming, just a whole yeah. different level. He talked about Neil being at a different level. He's at a different level. Yeah, he's at a different level too. Just fascinating. Yeah, he has a lot of, you know, he's he's interested not just in, uh, you know, the band as a band. He's interested in the, the minutia that makes Rush better than, you know, 99.9% of all other bands. Yeah, and that's what we're interested in, and that's what our listeners are interested in, the minutia. Yeah, what's that little thing? Which makes him the perfect guest for us. Yeah, perfect. And I just want to remind everybody to follow Steve on Instagram, at Steve Holmes underscore. He's got lots of great drumming videos on there, and a great follow. And also to check him out on YouTube. His drum videos are up there as well, including the Neil Peart tribute that we talked about. So Steve, I wanted to tell you about something that uh, is coming up on our good friends at Rush Fans on their Instagram account. Okay. They're doing a a bracket, a Rush song bracket of deep cuts. Oh, March Madness, Rush style. Love it. Yeah, exactly. They're going to do like 16 songs from, from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000. And those songs were chosen by the page admins. Okay. And then people are going to be able to vote every day on which song they like better in each bracket until finally we get down to the one deep cut that people have voted as, as their favorite. Oh, wow. So there's going to be a final winner. They're going to start with, what, 64 like they do in college basketball? Yes, exactly. And then whittle it down to one deep cut that Rush fans like the most. Yep. 
Very cool. And the voting is going to start on the 8th, March 8th. Which is today. Which is when this episode airs. And the voting will continue through March 27th and 28th. And that will be the, the last voting. Oh, nice. So we'll, we'll announce the winner here, too. I can't wait to see who wins. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. What are you voting for? What's your favorite deep cut? Oh, I don't, I don't even know. I've seen the bracket, but I don't remember all the choices. I can go with Cinderella Man if that's on the bracket. <laughs> that's my favorite deep cut. If it's a deep cut, do you count that as a deep cut? I have a slice idea what, what constitutes a deep cut. Who chose the 64? That's what I want to know. The admins? They decide? Yeah. Okay. They have, they have a collective wisdom that's better than ours. Oh, better than ours. That's for sure. You can find us on Twitter, at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at TheRushCast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Steve Holmes today at TheRushCast at gmail.com. And Jerry, your collective wisdom has a quote for us, I hope. Oh, it sure, I sure do, Steve. Can't wait. And it's from... It, this is from Clockwork Angels, because I was listening to Clockwork Angels the other day. Oh, cool. I don't think I've ever done a, a quote from Clockwork Angels. You have not. And it's from The Anarchist, which is probably my favorite song on the album. Me too. The lenses inside of me that paint the world black, the pools of poison, the scarlet mist that spill over into rage, the things I've always been denied, an early promise somehow died, a missing part of me that grows around me like a cage. Are you okay today, Jer? I just want to make sure you're all right. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Take it easy. All right, see you.